Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Ethan Weiss is an associate professor of cardiovascular research at UCSF. He received his MD from Johns Hopkins, and his special interests include preventive cardiology, genetics of coronary disease, risk assessment, and heart disease in the young. He's also the co-founder of Keto, that's K-E-Y-T-O, a plant-based approach to keto and weight loss. When it comes to all things heart health, he's one of the best. Ethan, welcome. Thank you. It is so great to have you here. I'm a huge fan of all your work, so it's about time. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. I know I had, we had a couple. I had a couple of uh, um, misfires trying to get here. It took me. Th- I think this is our third time. I felt felt bad. Third time's a charm. It is. Well, so let's start. You have a really incredible personal health journey. So let's start there and talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to start off by saying that I've been blessed in my health. I, I've I've been healthy. I think uh, we're at the margins of sort of what. Um, it's not that it's not important. I just want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people out there who have legitimate real health problems. But I had, as a middle-aged man, put on weight. It's easier to see it in retrospect looking back on photographs. Um, but I had uh, gained, you know, 20 or 25 pounds since college, probably. Uh, and, you know, you don't really notice it. Like, you don't feel it um, other than, like, when clothes don't fit. And so it bothered me. Uh it bothered me enough that I, I think, you know, five or six years ago, I started tr- trying to play around with uh, a form of intermittent fasting. So I started time-restricted eating. And I think I lost about 10 pounds uh, over that time. And I, I've continued to do that mostly because I was just never hungry in the morning. And so it was easy for me to do. Uh, and so probably about two years ago, I uh, was playing around. So I'd, I actually, had, uh, three or four years ago, I joined the advisory board of a company based in San Francisco called Verta Health. And they use the ketogenic diet to uh, help people with type 2 diabetes. Uh, that's what their core mission is. And I was really intrigued by the results that they were seeing in that population of people. But I also found that that n- nutrition approach seemed kind of weird to me. And I have a distinct memory of going to a dinner with the advisors one night at a Mexican restaurant. And um, we show up and they had, you know, like all the guacamole out in bowls. <laughs> and there were spoons, but no chips. And I leaned over to my seatmate, who was also not doing keto at the time, and I was like, "This is weird." Uh, <laughs> and I had that feeling for a long time, but ultimately ended up trying it. Um, we had a prototype of this, you know, breath device that we ended up developing, and I was playing around with it. And at, for me, at least at the beginning, I wasn't really trying to lose any weight. I was more just trying to see if I could get myself into ketosis as an experiment. And very rapidly over the period of you know three or four weeks, I lost a lot of weight. Uh, I lost probably 10 to 15 pounds in a, in a month uh, and started to feel different, like really different. And uh, I mean, there were a few times, it's always hard to know, like, do I, am I really feeling better or do I think I'm feeling better? But there were a few <laughs> things that like were obvious and like, I don't think I could be fooling myself. The, the one that I talk about a lot is skiing. So skiing last, last winter was my first winter um, while I, after I'd lost all this weight. I ended up losing about 20 pounds had to buy all new clothes. Like um, people thought I had cancer, which is scary. Uh, but once they figured out that I didn't have cancer, they, they all wanted to know what I was doing. 
Um, and so, but last year during ski season, I just, it was like a whole different thing. I, I, I felt like I was, you know, 17 Wow. and, um, you know, wasn't like limping around like an old man hunched over after skiing all day. So that was my, uh, journey. I mean, everything else looked good. I mean, I, I, it's funny cause I'm a cardiologist, but I sort of am a minimal minimalist when it comes to, um, at least my own health. And so I, I didn't, I don't check a lot of like blood work and stuff, but I decided to check last year just to see, to make sure everything was not out of whack. And it looked really good. Uh, all the numbers look good. So, um, you know, I feel as good as I have since I was in high school and, uh, yeah, I'm happy. It's kind of good. So in that process, you did two things. So intermittent fasting. Yeah. I'm curious. So like which there are multiple formats. Yeah. Overnight, yeah. 14 hours, 16, eight, 18, six, 24. And everyone gets excited about autophagy, yeah. uh, including myself. So talk a little bit about what you did there and what you do today and what the science is there. Okay. So let me back up and say, I spend uh, a good chunk of my life in a research lab. Um, I don't actually spend me physically there anymore. There are people there, but, but part of my responsibility is to run a research lab. I love science. Um, so do we, yeah, science is the greatest, <laughs> but I also am very humble about be connecting science, uh, and medicine. So, or connecting science and health. I think we make a lot of leaps that are probably unfounded. So autophagy is the perfect example. I love autophagy. I'll talk about Tor all day long. Um, I'll talk about any component of the insulin signaling pathway all day long, but I'm not convinced yet that we have uh, enough uh, knowledge to be able to link what we're seeing in cells or even in mice or even other model systems with what's going on in our own health. So uh, I'm sort of... um, I like to wear these two hats, but I don't like to merge the two hats, which mm. is kind of a funny thing. So I don't think about autophagy. Uh, I practiced or I started doing 16-8. And the reason I was doing 16-8 was that I found uh, that I wasn't really hungry in the morning. It wasn't hard to do or it was less hard to do than I imagined it would be. I used to eat in the breakfast because my mom told me to eat breakfast. And, uh, and, <laughs> Good son. Well, I mean, you know, like everyone says breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I think it was one morning we were going to have a late brunch and I figured, well, I'm going to, I don't want to ruin my brunch. I'm just going to wait. And I remember thinking, gosh, that was kind of easy or it wasn't that hard to to not eat until one o'clock. So I did that. And then I started thinking, well, I could do that. And I did that consistently and continue to do that now. It has subsequently become even easier now that I do keto because I'm just really legitimately not hungry. Uh, It's a very different even different thing now doing keto. So 16-8. And I actually have um, been working, we're working on a randomized controlled trial that should be published or at least presented in the next couple of months comparing, uh, it's in 150 people comparing 16-8 to three meals a day. Hmm. And we'll look at a bunch of outcomes, including obviously weight, but we'll look at a bunch of other things, uh, body composition, energy expenditure, insulin, glucose, homeostasis, and things like that. And so we're excited to, to see that because I think there's a lot of excitement about fasting in general, but there's still not quite the evidence sure. basis yet to support it. Is there any anything you've seen where there's potentially a greater benefit as duration increases? So 18, 20, some people do the 36 every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, there are people who do longer. I mean, I know people who do one week fast. I have one patient of mine who, who has, he has the funniest uh, practice. He will fast for one week doing nothing but water. On Sunday of that fast, he'll have a steak and a glass of red wine, and then he'll fast for another week. Whoa. Yeah. It's a bizarre thing. But there are people who do all kinds of things. Look, there's nothing yet uh, other than anecdote 
and other than like somebody's experiments in in cells or in mice to support that there's a benefit to humans but i'll say it's one of the things that we can control ourselves without somebody like me as a doctor writing a prescription so it's empowering and i think it's free yeah and if people want to do it you're not eating as much it's also easy right i mean that's the other thing or relatively easy right you don't there's nothing complicated there's no like you don't have to measure you know track your calories or your macros or anything it's a simple thing um the other thing that i love about it is that it it sort of reverses or at least potentially addresses one of the core problems i think we as human beings have evolved out of from our ancestors which is we we eat all the time not when food is available right it used to be that you would eat when you'd have food and uh and that's very different right we didn't evolve in an in an environment where there were refrigerators and and preservatives so our ancestors ate when they could get food so i think one of the things that we've done is to condition ourselves not to tolerate hunger very well so to me one of the like biggest benefits of my practice of intermittent fasting is to learn how to be hungry again and it's something i talk about with my kids all the time because my kids will come home from school and they'll say i'm starving i'm starving and i'll say are you really starving and, or are you dehydrated? Well, I said, let's just like be clear on what that word means. Are you like, what do you mean by that? And they say, I'm starving. I'm good. I'm going to die. And so I love to tell them, I'm, it's probably the hundredth time I've told, said this publicly, but I love to ask them sort of what is your, like, what do you believe? Like, when will you actually die if you don't eat? And their, their answer is, I don't know like soon in the next couple of hours, your kids, 16 and 13. (laughs) And I'll ask them and they still don't believe it. I'll say, what is the longest period of time that a human being has lived without any food? And they'll be like six hours. I mean, (laughs) Uh, and when I tell them it's like 300 and something days, they just don't even believe it. So it's, uh, so I think one of the things that I, for me personally, that's been empowering about the intermittent fasting is that I just, I know that my hunger well, it feels like at some time, sometimes it be, it's linear. So if you get hungry, that it's going to keep going up, 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 that it actually doesn't. It's there are peaks and valleys. And so it'll come up and it'll come back down and you can actually move through it. Now, I've never done a super long fast. I fasted before so I turned 50 this year and I had a colonoscopy. And so I fasted for probably 40 hours before that. And I probably could have kept going, but I also was like, I don't really, right. I'm not sure what the purpose of this is. So, <laughs> yeah. So you also mentioned keto earlier, which is, you know, we talk about science and there's a lot, a lot of studies, I think happening, but most, I think a lot of it with regards to diabetes and, and, and more of a disease management, if you will, how is your thinking around keto evolved since a couple of years ago? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so for one, my personal experience combined with the data that I keep that I see coming out, and I'll acknowledge that the data we have is still not perfect. Although, is there perfect nutrition data anywhere? Uh, and the answer to that question is obviously no. I think you should say that again. Yeah, is there perfect <laughs> nutrition data anywhere? No, there there is not. I think we're uh, you know the quality of the data in nutrition science is poor. We all know that. It unfortunately, in the words of Don Rumsfeld, my favorite quote of all. Um, and face for people, well, probably <laughs> unfortunately. So for people out there who don't know who Donald Rumsfeld is, he was the defense secretary under George Bush II. And he had a quote that I love, which was, this was during the Iraq war. And he was getting questioned by reporters about like, you know, the quality of the army or this and that. And he said, you go to, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. And so I, I apply that to nutrition science, right? We don't, I would love to have more science. Very appropriate because it feels like a war. It is a little bit. Science. Yeah, it is a little bit of a war. 
so for me personally, I, um, you know, obviously the, w- looking at the data and then my own experience led me to, you know, uh, I think conclude that there's something there. Uh, there's clearly something there on the diabetes side. I think that's been fairly well established. And even the sort of most ardent critics, I think will acknowledge that. Uh, I think there's something there on the weight loss side. The mechanisms of sort of how keto leads to weight loss, I think are hotly debated. And when it comes to nutrition wars, that's kind of one of the biggest ones. And I try to stay out of it. I think I'll let them figure it out. I think we can all agree it does lead to weight loss. Uh, My guess is that the bulk of that effect comes from the appetite suppressing effects that I think you just end up eating less, whether there's a benefit in terms of energy expenditure or something else. I don't know whether there's a benefit of ketones themselves. I don't know. So I uh, have come to really love and practice keto myself and uh, recommend it to patients. And I've started a company around it. Uh, But I did was left with sort of this one, I think, conundrum that bothered me. And, and we can, talk about that at some point too yeah so let's talk about your personal approach to keto and what that looks like in a day in the life which is a more plant-based approach which is something we're big believers in in mind buddy green it was one of our trends and then we also i want to talk about the company that you got two exciting two amazing products that i i love and we'll talk about but let's talk about the plant-based approach and yeah so maybe we should back up and say i think uh my perception of keto probably based on sort of it's earlier life as the Atkins diet was that keto equals bacon and butter and steak and lard, right? I mean, I think if you sort of did like a thought bubble, like, and you ask somebody, what is keto? That those are the words that would pop up um, or the foods that would pop up. Sure. And uh, so I think most of us didn't appreciate that you can do keto without that. And so why is that important? Well, the reason for me as a cardiologist it's, it's important is that one of the sort of things that we see, have seen and one of the things that concerned me the most about keto, and it was something that came up during the era of Atkins and, you know, was the effect on, on lipids or cholesterol. And I, as a cardiologist, am not in the camp of dismissing the value or importance of cholesterol. I think that cholesterol is one of, if not the most important risk factors for coronary artery disease, for heart attacks, which remains the biggest cause of death in the world. So I'm not ready to dismiss uh, the importance of cholesterol, of blood cholesterol. I will acknowledge that keto diets lead to many other benefits. Uh, And in fact, I think one of the sort of areas of cognitive dissonance for people in whom this happens is that they'll say, well, I lost all this weight. All of my markers got better. My insulin, my glucose, my, you know, triglycerides went down, my HDL went up, everything looked great. But there's this one sort of nagging thing, which is my LDL cholesterol, my bad cholesterol went up. And that story gets told again and again, and it's probably anywhere between 20 and 40% of people who do conventional high saturated fat keto keto diets that have that. And so it's been an area that's sort of been incredibly ripe for discussion slash argument slash war. (laughs) Uh, But I'm not ready to buy into the fact that all those other benefits offset the problems with LDL. And so I, we started thinking a lot about, well, what could you do? Is there a way to do keto where you wouldn't get that? That Could you get all the good without the bad? Sure. And so for me, I started experimenting with this sort of heavily plant-based and fish. So I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. I have experimented with doing vegan keto for a week, and it's definitely doable, but it's probably not for me long-term. So I started playing around with what happens if you take away, you know, if you replace olive oil with 
or sorry, if you replace butter with olive oil, you eat, you know, you get your fats mostly from avocado, from nuts, from fatty fish. If you're, you know, eat that kind of, if you eat meat, uh, and the result of that was that it looked like that for me, at least appears to be the convergence of all the good without the bad. Like that's, and I've had a few patients anecdotally who've had wonderful experiences where they had these like skyrocketing LDL cholesterols who changed their diet from sort of predominantly, you know, meat and saturated fat and butter and to, you know, avocado, olive, olive, olive oil, olives, nuts, and, uh, and salmon. And they've had, you know, very good changes in their lipids. So it's something that I'm excited about. We will test it formally, but it's something sure. I'm really excited about. I'm one of those people that started to happen to me when I yeah. started to go a little bit in the wrong direction. So I'm curious personally, like what does a day in the life look like for you in terms of what do you eat? Yeah, simple. I have a cup of black coffee in the morning. Yeah, when still I good. Up. Still good. I love black coffee. Still good. We, I tell my partners uh, and anyone else who will listen to me, that I, there were two non-negotiables in my nutrition journey. And and so anything that I would develop and promote or believe in had to have two things. One of them is coffee and, <laughs> and the other one is wine. So I uh, I couldn't support anything where I wouldn't be able to. People would say, well, you can't drink. And I said, no, of course you can drink. Um, red wine or is all wine? I think, you know, like uh, I drink, I prefer red wine, but I don't think there's a big difference. I mean, the amount of carbohydrate in a glass of dry white wine is the same as it is in a glass of you know dry red wine. So, um, yeah. So, and then lunch for me is a salad. I think one of the big changes for me on my personal journey was that instead of going and buying lunch every day at Subway or at a food truck, uh, and eating a burrito or eating, you know, whatever it was that was there, whatever crap was there. I, one of the benefits of doing keto is that there isn't, it's not really easy to find food in places, uh, like, you know, uh, when you go out to have lunch. And so I started bringing my own lunch. I would make a salad every day. I continue to do that now. I've been doing that for almost two years. And so my salad is, you know, some form of lettuce, whatever, usually whatever's in the house so arugula or, you know, kale or, whatever it is, and then chopped vegetables, celery, cucumbers, peppers. Um, my good friend, Carrie Dayulis, who's, um, good, uh, I know somebody you know well, introduced me to these lupini beans, which are extremely high in fiber and have zero net carbs. And so I'll throw them into my salad. I'll throw a lupini bunch of- Lupini beans. Lupini beans, yeah. And, uh, and they're awesome uh, because, you know, again, fiber is another consideration, right? that people on conventional ketogenic diets don't typically get a lot of fiber. So it's great if you can find sources of fiber that don't also have a lot of carbohydrates. So lupini beans and then um, a whole avocado every day, a whole avocado, nuts, usually macadamia or walnuts, which are my favorite. Uh, And then uh, I will either throw a protein if it's, you know, leftover salmon from the night before or some tofu, or occasionally I'll just not have it. I have, I'll get enough from um, from the rest. And then I keep in my office a, a basically a cabinet full of olive oil, and I douse my salad in olive oil. And, and that's my lunch every day. Occasionally I'll throw some cheese on there, depending on how I feel. Um, and then dinner is really just a roasted vegetable. It's either, you know, call it something non-starchy, so broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, and then some protein, usually, you know, fish or tofu or something like that, depending on what's going on. And our house is weird because my wife and I are both doing keto. My younger daughter is a vegetarian, really a pescatarian. And my uh, m- older daughter is basically loves meat. So it can be hard, <laughs> hard to kind of 
make the Venn diagram circles overlap. So we often are making a few meals. So where I was going next is, is protein. So it sounds like your favorite source personally is fish. Fish. Wild, I love fish. Wild. Yeah. I mean, I try as much as I can for both, you know, ethical and health reasons to, to have fine wild caught, you know, wild caught fish. Um, I'm not perfect. How do you rank your fish? Do you subscribe to Smash? No, I don't. I should actually. I should. I'll have to get that for me. So it's like the sa- salmon, yeah. mackerel, yeah. anchovy, yeah. sardines, yeah. and herring. Okay, I mean, those are basically the ones I would eat. Right. I would eat tuna if it's you know if you can sure. confirm it's not you know doesn't have a lot of mercury, and if it's you know sustainably caught. It's a, it's a hard place to be. It's really hard because I think if you could pick like an ideally healthy protein source from animals if you're a person who does eat animals fish is the best but you know there are all these problems right there's the sort of sustainability yeah. issues there's the mercury, mercury yeah. issues so um but those are that's my you know go-to i'll have, I'll have salmon five or yeah. seven times a week so as a cardiologist personally what's your take on eggs and then chicken ah so that's a great question um i think you know, look, the bottom line on eggs for me is that the effect, unless you're one of these people who's eating 20 eggs a day or something crazy, I think the effect size of any negative impact of eggs on health, if there is one, is is small. I think the reason we see, you know, it's almost like a weekly new study saying that eggs will kill you or eggs are going to make you live forever. The reason we see this bouncing ping pong ball back and forth is because people are focusing on the conclusion and not on the magnitude of the effect size so i do eat eggs i don't like love eggs and i don't eat them every day but i will eat eggs i'll have an omelet um you know if i'm gonna have breakfast with my family on on a weekend i'll have an omelet or if there's nothing in the refrigerator i come home from work one night and i'm hungry i'll have an omelet so i definitely will eat eggs um i don't there are some people in whom it does like cause crazy cholesterol responses and i think those are people probably that should pay attention but for sure. me it didn't, didn't seem to impact them and what about chicken i do eat chicken uh i don't eat a ton of chicken uh but i do eat i will eat chicken a couple i have a couple of recipes that i actually really love um and i had chicken last night for dinner so yeah so you have it it's i will have it yeah. do you view it as i've heard some people say it's like chicken's neutral chicken can depend on the individual for some people could elevate you know it's yeah, I mean, the, uh, there's there was an interesting study that came out this summer from one of my good friends and colleagues, Ron Krauss, who's at, um, in Oakland, and he's one of the sort of fathers of lipidology. And his study suggested that it didn't matter what kind of protein, it didn't matter whether you were eating red meat or white meat from chicken, that they that that it was really the animal protein itself that had the impact on on cholesterol and lipids. As much as I love Ron, I'm not really sure I'm ready to go there yet. I still think that there's uh, there is an impact of the amount of and quality of saturated fat. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm still, I, and again, for me, my principles in nutrition are I'll eat almost anything a little bit. Sure. Like I'm not gonna, uh, I don't have an ethical, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have a big, strong ethical thing. The one thing I don't eat and we don't need to like get into details of why, but I don't, I don't eat, personally don't eat beef, and I haven't eaten beef in twenty years. Got it. I As, was going to ask you that yeah. next. Like, do you ever touch red meat? I occasionally will have some. I mean, once a month I'll have lamb or pork, what, Got but it. literally once a month. But I don't, I don't eat cow. Got uh, it. And it's not religious, and it's not really health. It's more kind of a random like story that happened twenty years ago. So. Got it. Got it. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. 
Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So as a cardiologist, what are the tests? You know, I think most people, they go to their doctor and they get like the, you know, if it's a traditional Western doctor, it's like they do like the standard kind of test. But like, in your opinion, what are some of the more, like, I think everyone gets cholesterol, blood pressure, like what are some of the more progressive testing that someone should do if they're concerned about, you know, developing heart disease? Yeah. It depends a little bit on who that person is and what their risk is. Uh, there is some really compelling evidence from human genetics. So we don't, what we don't have in cardiology are studies that last longer than five years. Just that's the nature of the business. We have observational studies that last a lot longer, but those are highly flawed and very hard to interpret. So the best, I think, evidence we have uh, relating to all this comes from human genetics, which are sort of experiments of nature. And I think the net of that is that people, it seems to be that the lifelong exposure to some of these, what, what people call atherogenic lipids. So these are lipids that cause plaque or plaque buildup or, or blockages of the arteries and eventually lead to heart attacks. That, that it's the lifetime exposure to these kinds of, of lipids that matters. And so there is some evidence to support intervening earlier or discovering earlier and potentially intervening earlier, either with lifestyle and or medical therapy, despite the fact that there are no trials to support that. And it's an area where, you know, I now practice differently than I did 10 years ago when I was trained in this very sort of hardcore traditional Western evidence-based medicine approach, which is if there's no trial, it doesn't exist. I think my patients don't respond to that. I think, and it's unfortunately, the reality is if we wait around for the trials for some of these things, we're, uh, we're all going to be dead. Now, is the, (laughs) is there, does that excuse, I mean, does that sort of give you free reign to do anything? No, of course not. We have to be humble. And, and so for me, any intervention that I would think about that's unsupported by a trial, I would, it would have to be really low risk. And, uh, and so that's how I think about it. So in terms of the tests, I don't want to dismiss the value of cholesterol and blood pressure because those are probably the two most important. They're leading in you. There's there's something happening. They're really important. And so I think don't not, you know, those are the two kind of most important. And so, and blood pressure is blood pressure. I think the only thing I'll say is that, so blood pressure varies a lot throughout the day and between the day and between different days and some people have a spike in blood pressure because of coffee. Some, you know, there's a, so one blood pressure is probably not adequate. So I think, you know, get a few blood pressures for cholesterol. The traditional lipid profile that you would get if you went to your doctor would include total cholesterol, HDL triglycerides, and they would calculate this um, LDL cholesterol Mm -hmm. through a formula, which is very simple. And five years ago, I thought, well, that's all we need. And then somewhere around five years ago, I started to think, well, there must, there's probably more we can learn. And so I started adopting a little bit more of a, uh, detailed approach to looking at the lipids. So for one, I added an LP little a, especially in people who were higher risk or had a family history. Uh, LP little a is a different sort of form of a lipid, but it's 
been associated, very highly associated. That was with a great yeah. Bob Harper. Anna Hot O'Connor wrote yeah. a great piece about LPA and Bob Harper, yeah. like a guy who looks fit, looks yeah. great, but wait, what? This one thing over here. Yeah, and that one, that story gets told again and again. And it's often in young, younger men, and you'll see this over and over again. And people, if they've gotten a calcium scan and their lipids look a, look good, you can almost predict it, that this is, yeah, if they have high calcium in their arteries, that they're gonna, it's gonna be because of LP little a. So I still will get an LP little a. I probably get it in most patients I see, but that's sort of a biased sample because of the people that I see in my practice as a preventive cardiologist. Um, I also started getting a little bit more detailed in the lipids and I would do these advanced lipid profiles, whereas I used to dismiss them and think this is worthless. So I'd look at sort of not just um, the basic lipid profile that I described before, but I'd look at you know either ion mobility or some NMR spectroscopy to look at the different size of, L- of LDL particles. Particle size, yeah. yeah particle number and then apolipoprotein B. So ApoB is this uh, protein that carries around lipid. And that one is probably the most highly implicated as a bad actor. And you can measure that now uh, in blood almost anywhere and it's cheap. Whereas these other, you know, like the particle size is pretty expensive, but ApoB is like $15. So my, I went sort of one, I did one of these like boomerang things where I went from kind of being a minimalist to ordering all this stuff to now doing less again, except in certain people. I think the particle size, and I've been thinking a lot about this over the last year, the particle size is interesting. There, It's the most impacted by nutrition. And I think it's, uh, you know, I will order it from time to time in people, especially if we're going to make a nutrition change. But I think what is, the, I would say, sort of my basic panel is, is, you know, besides blood pressure and regular lipids is an ApoB and an LP little a. I think that's probably sufficient. And if you really, really wanted to, you could get the same or close to the same knowledge by just taking the original basic lipid profile and looking not at LDL cholesterol, but looking at non-HDL cholesterol, which is basically the total cholesterol minus the HDL. And and so in some ways, basically what I tell people is that non-HDL in populations is relatively equal to ApoB, which is relatively equal to LDL particle number. All three of those tend to give about the same information in populations, not always in individuals. Got it. So something else when you think of heart disease and people will talk about this, I think there, I don't know if this, this is real or just an anecdote that so many heart attacks occur Monday morning at 9 a.m. Yeah. Stress. It's not an anecdote. And there was actually some beautiful work done by a uh, guy, I think his name is Jim Muller. This is back in the 1980s on stress and the relationship to that as a trigger for heart attacks. There have been natural experiments, I think, uh, looking at like cities. Natural experiment. Let's put them in a room well, and yell at them. No, but you can't. <laughs> no, but there are some naturally stressful experiments of the world's in world history. So I think after earthquakes or I think after like World Cup losses, there are certain countries where like the rate of heart attacks spikes in like a non-trivial way after the team lost the World Cup or after a big earthquake. The, these are like, you know, now wow. established. So there's no doubt that stress is important as a heart attack trigger. Stress, extreme emotional stress can also cause a different form of heart disease that's called broken heart syndrome, which is basically sure. your heart can weaken, usually temporarily, but like it happens a lot in people who've lost a spouse or have gone other gone under some other extreme emotional stress um, that, like I said, is usually reversible. But there's no doubt that stress itself, probably through cortisol or other you know hormones that we don't completely appreciate, will is will increase your risk uh, to trigger a heart attack. What have you seen for? It seems like we're in generation anxiety. Yeah, everyone's stressed. What have you seen that works for people? 
I don't have an answer to that other than what works for you works for you. The one yeah. thing I'll or you personally. Well, so uh, I don't really I, I'm a Luddite like I uh, or maybe that's the wrong word. <laughs> I don't practice like I wish my wife is a huge yoga fanatic like she goes to, she has this teacher she follows around like a you know like she's like a teenager chasing after like Justin Timberlake. It's um, which teacher I can't remember her name but she's uh, she's a some studio in San Francisco. Okay. My wife literally, I mean, and our whole family will organize our weekly schedule around my wife being able to go to her yoga, to her, her yoga. It's impacts the family in positive and negative ways, <laughs> negative ways. If she can't go, she's been trying to convince me to go for years. I just, it hasn't been my thing. I have like my own sort of weird practices of meditation that are probably not meditation. Um, I'll like close my eyes at work for 15 minutes and that's maybe some, meditate. That's yeah. A form of mindfulness. Yeah. But, you know, personally, I don't do too much. The one thing I do, and this is going to sound weird, the one thing that I emphasize internally and also with my friends and family and with my patients is that sometimes uh, I find that people are anxious about their anxiety sure. and that it's the same thing with sleep or other things that, that they'll come to me and say, I, I, can't, I need to do something to, make, to, get my, to reduce my anxiety. And I'll say, well, do you feel that way or do you feel that way because somebody made you feel that way? And they'll say, well... I just feel like I have too much stress. And I said, well, don't stress about having stress. Like one thing you can start by doing is just don't stress about the fact that you have stress. You don't want to have double jeopardy, right? Don't punish yourself for the fact that you're feeling stressed. And that can somewhat alleviate a little bit of it. So with regards to anxiety, you know, you're, you're in, we talk about generation anxiety. Uh, it's my point of view. And I don't know what the science says, but I think science is starting to support this as technology plays a role no doubt you're in no the belly doubt. of the beast of the valley no yeah doubt. what's your thought there yeah i mean i remember as an intern when my pager would go off i would have like a dreadful like pit in my stomach if i were measuring cortisol i'm sure i'd have a cortisol surge and anytime i would hear that noise you know i finished my internship in 1996 so anytime i would hear that no noise for 10 years after that i would have that same like Pavlovian response. And uh, it probably took 10 years to get rid of it. And the same thing now happens when I hear a text go off. Like it's the same thing. And it's funny because we have this yellow lab who's like got extraordinary anxiety. And literally we have had to turn off all sound notifications in our house because he will like jump into bed with us if he hears a text go off. He goes crazy. And so we don't have any notifications. But if I'm out with somebody and their text goes off, like I jump. Um, this stuff is can't be good. I mean, I, we look. I'm terrible. My wife if, will like to say that I'm one of the worst in terms of my attachment to my phone. Uh, it's something I aspire to fix without making it, you know, again a source of great stress that I'm stressing about using my phone too much. <laughs> but I think we're all like bombarded by all this stuff way too much. I I, um, I aspire to be the guy who like I'll take the dog out for a long walk on the weekends and I aspire to be the person who can leave my phone behind. I haven't yet been well, able to do that. Well, one of our other trends is is happening in the valley called dopamine fasting. Right. 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 <laughs> Look, I mean the few times in my recent history where I have not been connected, I've come back feeling so re renewed and and energized and connected, like connected to the world, to to the universe. And I keep thinking like, this is a lesson. And, you know, every time that happens for three or four days or five or a week, I'll, I'll you know, 
kind of find my phone gross. But of course, then life interferes and like you sure. have it, it comes back again. So I don't know how to, to sustain it. I don't know how we can fix it. Now, of course, I do worry about our kids. I, I think it's, uh, you know, our kids are like so ridiculously connected to these things that we didn't have. I mean, they, they just can't even understand the fact that we didn't have these devices. Sure. So something else you mentioned earlier was sleep. Right. Yeah. How, how important is sleep? Well, again, you know, based on like scientific evidence, I can't tell you that it's like, you know, going to kill you if you don't sleep. I think we all logically believe that it's like really important. Um, and I think people can tell their own anecdotal experiences of what happens to say blood sugar control or other things if they don't sleep. And Carrie probably could tell you endlessly about what happens to her blood sugar control if she doesn't sleep. Um, it's important. It's really important. And uh, it's another one of these things where I hope people won't punish themselves if they are struggling with it. Like it's done, I don't want it to be a compounded thing where if you're having trouble sleeping that you're then anxious about, about, about not sleeping. Uh, I mean, I think I'm blessed to be able to sleep anywhere. I could sleep upside down on my head in a loud crowded room and um, have no trouble. So um, I have, a, I, you know, it's a little bit harder for me, but I know it's like one of the biggest things that I talk about with my patients is their difficulty in sleeping. Uh, how much of that is related to things that we can control? So, you know, alcohol, stress, you know, caffeine, things like that, other sleep hygiene related things. I don't know how much of it is just biology. Uh, I don't know how much of it is anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know, but it is an area that I think is ripe. I think we're getting better at tracking sleep. So there are lots of devices that can tell you how your sleep is. Yeah. Yeah. The problem we're missing right now is that those things don't have actionable information yet, right? There's not a program that says, okay, well, your sleep is shit. So we should, like, here's what you should do to fix it. Um, so I'm, we're still stuck in this, like, it's information, but it's, there's no solution yet. Yeah, for me personally, and I, I you know, I wear a Fitbit. I track steps because I've, I've just always liked tracking steps. I love walking. I love, you know, that, that's my, my exercise <laughs> on many days. With sleep, I, I joke, like, I know if I have a bad right. sleep, I know if I have a good right. one, so I don't want to be reminded of it. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I wore an aura ring for a while and basically stopped wearing it because I would wake up every morning, and then I'd be anxious about, like, it How'd says, I do? well, it says I got no deep sleep, and yet I kind of feel fine, so wait, what's real? And so, um, for me, ultimately, again, I don't have a problem sleeping, so it was sort of like okay. a, it, not the most valuable thing for me. So... In many ways, I feel like we're in the, the golden age of well-being. New studies, and again, studies aren't perfect. Scientists is perfect, but one of the things we talk about here is this idea of connecting soul and science. So, you know, people people validating things like acupuncture works and and, yeah. and meditation, and, and okay, and then some things over here are a little bit of a reach um, with regards to nutrition or what have you. So, in your opinion, like what what are some of the most exciting developing if you will studies or, or or something recent that's come out that's really interesting and exciting to you yeah i mean i spend the majority of my time thinking about nutrition uh just because that's what i do uh, <laughs> and so you know i think it's exciting uh that we're sort of on the precipice of actually having real uh, and i won't call them like gold standard but but real science coming in areas, in the two areas that I think about the most, which is sort of what, when do you eat and what do you eat? Um, again, everything, every one of these questions should be framed with. Sort I of like what, that. It's quite simple. And yeah. if you think about it, that's what it is. It is. What and when. And then to me, the most important thing is to think 
about how you frame what your goals are. So if you're, you know, way overweight and you have type two diabetes, you may have a different set of goals. than if you're, you know, a 31 year old, you know, man who's got a BMI of 22 and is, you know, there, there are different goals for different people. And so I think one of the things to do is to start to begin to frame these questions in that context. And so I think there's some cool science coming in both of these areas. Uh, I'm excited, obviously, about learning more about the sort of real benefits or harms or neutrality of, you know, all versions of time-restricted eating intermittent fasting. I think we'll find out. There's a lot at the American Diabetes Association meeting, which was in San Francisco last year, and I was on the planning commission. So I went to a ton of, or planning committee, I went to a ton of sessions, by far the best attended session. I mean, by far was the intermittent fasting session. It was literally the room, which was like 750 people was full. The overflow room, which was 750 people was full. And there was a third overflow room and it was crazy. The energy in there was amazing. So I think that that's one area where we'll see more and more better science sort of on the question of when do you eat? Um, and lots of interesting things about, you know, different forms of fasting and then within sort of, you know, let's say it's 16, eight, what is the best time to eat versus what's the best time to fast? Well, so, also the differences between men and women there. Tons. And then, you know, in the, what you eat thing, there's going to be the continued diet wars. I think it's probably safe to say that we have some consensus. I am a consensus building person. I hate <laughs> conflict. And so, um, I try to find common ground. So I think one thing that we probably all can agree on, whether you're in the sort of staunchly, you know, sort of low fat vegan world or whether you're in the, you know, carnivore world, I think one thing that we can mostly agree on are three principles. And I think these three principles will probably stick around for the foreseeable future. So one of them is to limit our intake of processed food. And there was a beautiful study by Kevin Hall recently, which showed the impact of processed food. He's working on that, you know, again and again. And I think I saw that. Yeah. And and so it was, it didn't even matter where you fell on the diet spectrum, whether you were vegan or carnivore, the processed food was the bad thing there. Right. And it does, it makes sense, right? I mean, Skittles are vegan, right? Yes. Doritos, I think are probably vegan. Uh, Maybe, maybe there's cheese on them, but you get the idea like it, uh, you can eat crappy food that's vegan, you can eat crappy food that's keto or carnivore. So um, I think processed food, limiting our intake of processed food to the extent that we can. And I think this life happens. Yeah. But that's the other part of this is like, (laughs) it's stress. Don't stress about the fact if you're hungry, you're in an airport and you can't find something to eat. Like eat. I have a bar. Yeah. Travel with bars everywhere. Yeah. So um, the second principle is to limit our intake of added sugar. I think, you know, again, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, I think adding sugar to things has um, you know, there's evidence just as what happened with the tobacco industry that they were, you know, intentionally trying to addict people to tobacco. I think the similar evidence is now building a colleague of mine at UCSF uncovered papers, the sugar papers, similar to tobacco papers that where they were trying to addict people to sugar. So I think adding sugar to things un- net, unnecessarily is probably something we can agree on. It doesn't mean you can't have birthday cake, right? have birthday cake and don't feel guilty about it. And then the third thing is refined carbohydrates. I think that one, you know, maybe there's a little bit less consensus on, but that's one area where I think we probably can find some consensus is, you know, if you're going to have carbohydrates, it's probably best to have them in the sort of their natural state and to the extent that you can. Um, like sweet potatoes. Yeah. Sweet potatoes versus, you know, you know, regular potatoes. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe like instead of, 
pasta and bread, you know, vegetables. So it's funny you brought up just carbohydrates in general. We had a guest on here, RD, Maya Feller, and she was like, this is like the biggest catch-all category. If you think about it, yeah. within carbohydrates, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly. And it's just, you can't just say carbs. You can't. Well, and that's the thing. I think, you know, that's why, you know, you'll hear in the keto world, you'll, you'll hear the term net carbs all the time. And people, some people are turned off by that and some people aren't. I actually like it. I, I think it needs to, there needs to be a better word for it to make it more understandable for people. But the idea behind net carbs is you're subtracting out the dietary fiber. So in other words, like if there's, I don't even off the top of my head, don't know, but if there's 30 grams of carbohydrates in a serving of broccoli, that's not the same as 30 grams of carbohydrates in an apple. Sure. There's different, there's a, there's much less sugar in the broccoli than there is in the apple. So I think, um, I, I think we're learning that the five, the carbohydrate that comes in a fiber form is neutral, if not good for you. So I, I tell people don't even think about when, you know, how much you eat of that, you know, sort of non-starchy fibrous vegetables. Do you have a favorite personally? I mean, I, I, no, I mean, I, the ones I, I literally could eat broccoli, cauliflower, uh, asparagus or brussels sprouts every day probably do i probably do have them almost every day love them i love uh roasted cauliflower roasted brussels sprouts and broccoli like with like just drenched in olive oil yeah could do that all day i love it i discovered this like uh i don't know if i saw i mean it's not even really a recipe but i discovered that you could take a whole cauliflower head put it in a small um cast iron skillet and just drench it literally saturate it with olive oil and stick it in a hot grill. So just, you know, like a, and leave it there for like 35 minutes and it comes out like brown and perfect and like butter on the inside. It's amazing. You guys should go after this. The, the, there's a restaurant called the Osprey at the One Hotel, which okay. is in the park. It's beautiful, but they do exactly that. Oh, great. So I didn't <laughs> discover it. All right, perfect. So if you could uh, look into your uh, crystal ball, what do you think we're going to be talking about in a year from now or two years from now? Well, we're still going to be talking about the same things because we've been talking about the same things for a long time. I'm hopeful that we'll be talking more in, in a more informed way. Based, I, I'm hopeful that there will be more science. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think we're still probably going to be talking about these same questions, these same basic questions. You know, what do you eat and when do you eat and what are your goals and what is the evidence that it's going to make you healthier or live longer or reduce your risk of disease? Uh, I hope that we can get to a point where we don't spend our lives thinking about all this stuff all the time. I do think it somewhat detracts. I'm always fond of saying that life is short and we should enjoy it. And so sure. we don't want to spend our entire lives obsessing about all this stuff. We should probably be spending more time connecting with other people and um, doing the things we love. Some people love this and they should keep talking. I love it. I'll talk well, about it's it. It's why I love, I'm a big fan of Dan Buettner and Blue Zones. Okay. Emotional yeah. connection. Yeah. Just like yeah, not thinking about it too much, enjoying life. Breaking bread with friends and family, yeah. having wine. Breaking like, keto bread. Yeah, exactly. Breaking <laughs> keto bread. But like this idea of enjoying yeah. life, I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've often said here, the uh, if, you, if, you, if you're at a birthday party and, and you're stressing about not eating the cake, I would argue that not eating the cake and stressing about it is worse than in just enjoying the totally. cake at the birthday party. I agree. I couldn't go to a birthday party every night. Yes. But <laughs> now I will say we still live in a food environment that is challenging for a lot of people. So Carrie and I were walking through the airport yesterday and it's just a bombardment of smells and sights. And, you know, it's like oh, sure. Dunkin' Donuts and Cinnabon, you know, Cinnabon <laughs> Annie's. I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. one after another after another. And there it is. 
and that's an area where I think we really have a lot of room to improve. Yeah. Is, well, it's at the same time, like Duncan, like a lot of those, like some of those companies, Duncan, like they're trying to change. They are. They're trying and, to figure it out. They know they have a problem. They know they need to do better and they're trying. Yeah. And I don't want to get into the whole like, you know, alternate fake meat controversy, which I've grown very tired of. But the fact that Burger King and I don't know if McDonald's is doing it too. The fact that they have embraced you know, a, an impossible burger yeah. to me is a good thing. And, yeah. and, and again, we can argue about whether it's a healthy thing or it's good for the environment and all this, but the fact is that they're responding to something. They're not doing this for their health, for their health. No. They're doing it because people are demanding it in the marketplace. And, and I think everyone would agree. It's better than like crappy conventional meat. Yeah. Especially the meat that they're serving. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it was interesting. There was an article in the journal months ago while like Beyond Meat exploded in the stock market. Essentially, there were some interviews with people who were excited about this, about going to Burger King and trying the Impossible Burger and Beyond and so forth. It had nothing to do with health. They thought it was cool. Yeah. It and was like cool and interesting. It, it, and yeah, and there are people out there like my kid who, you know, is 13 years old and is basically a pescatarian. You know, if we're going somewhere and somebody, you know, her sister has a hamburger, she's like feels left out. And so now she can, again, independent of any of the health benefits, she feels more of a connection to the people she's eating with because she can eat one too. So I see that as a good no, thing. Oh, it's cool. I'm with you. I'm with you. So I'll close with, so last question, you, you and Carrie uh, have an exciting startup, Keto, K-E-Y-T-O. Right. And uh, let's talk about that. You've got a couple exciting products that personally I'm interested in because whenever I travel at bars and we also, we have a, three-year-old and we, we like better for you cereal options. Yeah. So those are two I'm excited about, but let's talk about the inspiration for that and what you guys are launching. Yeah. So the company um, was started basically, so I have these two amazing co-founders. They had been um, working in this space for a long time. They had started a company. They ultimately sold to Weight Watchers. That was a social sort of social network for weight loss. People had posted, it was like an Instagram feed. What was the name of the company? It was called Waylos. Okay. Um, and they were acquired by Weight Watchers. They worked there for a few years. We the, met up. For, now now no, it's WWW. Yeah. And so, uh, and I had been working with this other company, Verda, and seen the benefits that they were having in this sort of sicker population of people with advanced type 2 diabetes, but really amazing results. And to me, the most sort of like striking of those results were that people were coming off their diabetes medications. That's just not seen anywhere except in people who've had bariatric surgery. So the fact that you can you can intervene in a group of people and you see them coming off of their diabetes medications, including insulin, is amazing. So I thought, well, wow, this is such a cool thing, but it's pretty expensive and not accessible yet to an average person who may not be quite that sick, who may want to just optimize their health or their weight. So we thought about sort of how we could build a, a similar product uh, with, without all the human intervention, which is what drives the cost. And stumbled on this idea that, you know, one of the things about the keto diet, independent of all of its other benefits that it offers that's unique among diets is that it offers you a fast and trackable biomarker that allows you to know how you're doing on a real, in a relatively real time basis, which is you can measure your ketones mm -hmm. in breath or blood or urine. And so we developed this breath device, which really is designed for, to help people engage you do this diet diet for the purpose of you know health or wellness and weight loss and so we launched that product last year it's been super successful but then we thought okay well in addition to giving people information about how they're doing and enabling them to do better what else do they need so last year we basically launched this app which gives them all the resources they need it gives them a searchable database of food so if you're at a restaurant and you want to know well how many 
net carbs are there in an apple. You can punch an apple or you can punch in salmon or any food in, uh, out there. And recipes, um, Carrie helped us launch up entirely plant-based version. So if you want to do a vegan keto, uh, plant-based keto, you can do that now through our app. So we have recipes, we have meal plans, other resources, um, and fun things in the app. But the third thing that we thought was like going to be critical is not just sort of knowing how you're doing and knowing what to do or what not to do, but actually having the food in front of you. And I mentioned earlier that for me going to, you know, at lunch, it was challenging to find food that I could eat. And so we sort of decided, you know what, this is the time in this life cycle of this whole thing when we're going to have to make foods that we believe in. So we're launching our own foods. We're going to do uh, some of our own with like heavy, hardcore R&D. Uh, and the first two of those are, are bars and cereals. Um, those are two things that people are going to eat. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're hungry and you're rushing and you can't stop and have lunch, you should not have a panic attack about that. You should be able to eat something. And so we've developed really, really clean bars. So our bars, which will, I think we'll launch them on a crowdfunding campaign in, in January or so they, they're going to have, so they're entirely plant-based. So they'll have, the ingredients are very simple, basically almonds, almond bits, almond butter, olive oil, uh, some allulose. I mean, it's really incredibly clean. Um, and thanks to Carrie, we know they don't spike your blood sugar and, um, they are very low in net carbs at so three grams of net carbs, low in calories at so 200 calories. And they, they taste really nice. So excited about that. Super excited about cereal. You mentioned the kid thing. So one thing that my kids, you know, as I've been on my personal journey, both doing it, but also launching this company, my kids have grown quite tired of trying my different keto foods. Um, <laughs> they do not, they are not keto themselves. And they basically, it's almost like a Pavlovian response that they immediately think this is going to taste like crap if I give them something. But my, these products have passed my kids test, uh, which is pretty unusual and amazing. And I, to me, that tells me that this, these things taste good enough that, uh, you will have a hard time noticing the difference. And you may even find the taste better than you would just an average, like cliff bar or something, which is going to have however many, you know, hundreds of grams of sugar or whatever it is. So we're excited about both those areas. We have a few other ideas coming. Um, but the principle, the, the key idea is to be able to give people options, uh, if they want to find, you know, things like this without all this extra added sugar and with a moderate amount of carbohydrate. I love it. Well, please continue, uh, to send samples for taste testing by way. I'm all in. Well, I'll get you the samples of the cereal <laughs> as soon as we get them because it's pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so great. Congratulations. Thanks for being here, Ethan. Thank you so much, Jason. It's great.